good afternoon, everyone. Good evening, and welcome to the LSE Kuwait program public lecture. Uh, we're delighted to see so many of you here on a relatively rain-free and sunny evening, and delighted also to introduce Greg Muttit to give a talk on fuel on the fire, oil and politics in Iraq. Greg was the campaigns and policy director at War and Want in his most recent job. And he also is the author of this book, Fuel on the Fire, Oil and Politics in Occupied Iraq, which was published late last year to critical acclaim. In it, he drew on hundreds of unreleased government documents and extensive interviews with senior American, British, and Iraqi officials and oil men to investigate what happened to Iraqi oil in the aftermath of the 2003 occupation, invasion and occupation. Importantly, he also documented the actions of Iraqi civil society groups and oil experts to try to keep control of production in the public sector and to resist attempts to impose a Western oil agenda on the country, a story that has too often been left untold. And he made several extensive visits to Iraq to try to uncover the story of what was happening on the ground, which gives the book great original uh, value added. Uh, he was previously the co-director of the campaigning charity platform where he worked to expose the environmental and human impacts of the oil industry. He has worked on Iraq since the 2003 invasion and is one of the few practitioners, as I said, to retain an interest throughout the years of occupation that followed. And I think looking back on the publication of his book at the end of the uh, eight years of the uh, post of the kind of occupation, post-occupation Iraq and of the, as the dynamics of the the new political settlement begin to become clear. I think it's an extremely timely publication, and so I thank you for, for coming. I should also say that there'll be copies of the book to purchase after the event. Thank you, Christian, and um, thank you all for having me, and uh, thank you especially to the LSE uh, Kuwait program for organizing this event. Um, I, I'd like to talk about three things. Um, the, the, the first is the, um, the role of oil, uh, the strategic role of oil in relation to the war in Iraq. Um, the second is a little bit about the, the dynamics of, of the occupation and how oil played in that. And then the third is about what's happening now in Iraq. And, um, since, since Christian mentioned uh, Iraqi civil society, I'll, I'll try and say something about that at the end if there's, if there's time. Um, st starting with how oil fits into, um, into the war in Iraq, I'm, I'm not of the view that oil was the sole reason for the war, um, but clearly it was an important one. I, I think actually one of the most remarkable things about the war is the, is the length that the British and American governments went to to deny that oil featured even slightly in their considerations. Um, they tried very hard to ridicule the accusations that oil was somehow involved. But I think, I think the, the, one, the one view of, of all this that really is, is naive is the view that the war had nothing to do with oil, literally nothing to do with oil, as Donald Rumsfeld put it. Um, to, re to reduce it to very simple terms, um, a couple of years ago I, I talked to 
the U.S. State Department's senior advisor on Iraqi oil, um, who was involved in, in the planning up, up until the start of the war. And, and I asked him what he thought about, you know, how important was oil strategically. And the way he put it was, well, what did Iraq have that we would like to have? It wasn't the sand. Um, having said that, I, I think the, the role of oil in, in the war and in the occupation has, has often been um, misunderstood. It's been oversimplified. I think people have often um, imagined that it's some, somehow like our picture of the conquistador arriving in the new world to load up his ship with, with seized gold. And I think oil in the Iraq war and resources in, in um, contemporary warfare it don't work like that. After all, if you load up a, a ship with, um, with oil from Iraq, it might be worth a few tens of millions of dollars um, and cart it away as loot. If you sign a contract to extract oil over a, a period of two or three decades, it's worth tens of billions of dollars. The, um, the, the tanker load of oil is, is almost small change by comparison. Um, as, as the uh, uh, strategists, in the, especially the US government and somewhat in the British government, in the run-up to, to the war thought about it, the, their major concern, as I say, it was, wasn't about taking the oil and taking it back home. It wasn't even primarily about getting good deals for their own companies, for Exxon and Chevron for the Americans, or for BP and Shell for, for the Brits. It was a little bit more complex than that. And um, this, this comes out from some of the documents I got hold of, which, which Christian mentioned, which I got through the respective Freedom of Information Acts, both in, in Britain and the US. It, it comes out of um, what some of the think tanks were saying, especially at the time when the Bush administration was established in, in 2001. Um, and of, of course, they, they, they would prefer their own companies to, to get contracts out of it. That, that works well for them. But it's not their primary concern. Their primary concern is more about the shape of the oil market more broadly. And when you bear in mind that the, the USA is by far the world's largest per capita consumer of oil, at the time it was the largest overall consumer, when the oil price rises, that has a, a particularly strong impact on the, on the US economy, and, and Britain somewhat similarly. And the, the concern in, during the years leading up to the Iraq war uh, was that demand for oil around the world was increasing a lot more quickly than supply was. Uh, in particular, this was a, a result of economic growth in, in China, India, and other rapidly developing countries. And with the major oil reserves of the world in countries whose industries were predominantly nationalized, the, the rate of production wasn't increasing quickly enough to keep up with, with these increases in demand. As a result of that, um, as some of you may know if you follow oil, the, the rate of uh, um, the, the capacity to produce oil is always higher than the amount that's actually consumed. There's a, there's a, a cushion of spare capacity. Um, this largely sits in, um, in OPEC countries 
producing less than they could produce. They got the infrastructure to open up the taps a bit more. And in 1999, this cushion of spare capacity, the difference between supply, the, the extra potential supply that existed over demand, that cushion was 5 million barrels a day. Now, the world consumed at the time about 80, 85 million. Um, so that's, I don't know, 6 or 7%. By 2003, that cushion had shrunk from 5 million to 2 million barrels a day. So as demand was increasing, supply wasn't increasing to keep up with it, and the difference between the two was getting squeezed. And that was making the oil market more unstable and more prone to increases in oil price. Um, also more subject to any particular country that, um, that, that, cho that chose to pursue an oil policy that was antagonistic to the oil-consuming countries, and Saddam Hussein's Iraq was a particular concern in that regard. In fact, the supply cushion continued to decrease after the Iraq war began. Uh, it, it fluctuated a little, but by 2007, it was down to one million bar barrels a day. It only started to widen again as global demand began to decrease following 2008 because of the economic slowdown and, and recession. So what, what the American and British governments were particularly concerned about in the late 90s and early 2000s was a structural feature of the oil market, that demand was increasing more quickly than supply, and that the major, really huge reserves of the world were in countries that didn't particularly, that either they were closed to investment because of sanctions, or they didn't have any particular interest in increasing their rates of production because in terms of revenue they were doing fine as it was and they might as well save them for future generations. The solution that was articulated by oil strategists in the US and in Britain at the time was to open up some of these uh, previously closed oil provinces to foreign investment. Now, as you probably know, the um, five countries around the Persian Gulf hold more than 60% of the world's known oil reserves. Those five countries being Saudi Arabia with a bit more than 20%, Iran and Iraq each with around 10%, Kuwait and the Emirates with a bit less than 10%. So, and to varying degrees in all five of those countries, foreign investment is, is restricted in different ways. And so the solution, as the strategists saw it at the time, was if there can be massive foreign investment into those countries, that can increase the rates of production and that can restore the, the, um, the cushion of, of spare capacity in the oil market. Um, now, clearly, that, that was very compatible with the interests of the Exxons and the BPs of the world who wanted to invest in these enormous oil provinces of the region. Um, the way, uh, the, way the, the British government put it in a, in a strategy document at, at the time, um, which I got hold of, they, they said, our wider energy policy objectives for Iraq need to be dovetailed with commercial goals the two sets of goals, um, meaning the commercial goals and the goals to uh, reshape the, the oil market more broadly, the two sets of goals are mutually enforcing given the need for foreign investment in Iraq's, 
in Iraq's energy sector. Um, this will provide considerable market opportunities for UK firms. So that was a British government strategy paper talking about how its interests and the interests of um, the likes of BP and Shell were compatible and overlapping. One wasn't subservient to the other. Now, if, if, their, if their strategy was to, or if, if their strategic interest at least, was to reshape the oil market so as to prevent increases in oil price, they didn't do very well. If you look at the last nine years, um, at the time of the Iraq war in March 2003, the oil price was in the low 20s. Um, it climbed uh, initially steadily and then more quickly up to about $150 a barrel by 2008. And now it's, it's floating around somewhere a bit above 100. And so in that respect, um, it, you, you could, Iraq played a role, the Iraq war and the instability it generated played a role in delivering precisely the opposite of, of what the um, energy strategists wanted to see. And I'd like to say a little bit about the reason for that. Um, in the, in the run-up to the war, um, starting in summer 2002, there was a, a planning unit in the US Department of Defense. It was called the Energy Infrastructure Planning Group. And their role was to think about, during the period of direct occupation, in which the, the US and its allies ran the country, what would they do about oil? Um, the EIPG, the Energy Infrastructure Planning Group, um, it, it considered a whole range of, um, of issues. O among them was, how are we going to spend the revenues from I Iraqi oil sales during this period? Um, there's actually quite a funny um, a balance sheet where, the, where they add all these things up. And remember, this is in the Defense Department, which was absolutely dominated by the neocons at the time, who thought they were doing Iraqis a great favor by in invading the country and so on. And so they thought, well, of course, Iraqi oil revenue should pay for our military costs in invading the country. We estimate that will be uh, $60 billion a year. And they should pay for our costs in occupying the country. That will be another $48 billion a year. And they totted, totted all these up down the left-hand side. And they came up with the, the uses to which they wanted to put Iraqi oil revenues were somewhere in the range 114 to $167 billion. And then on the right-hand side, they totted up how much they were going to get from it. And it was between 15 and $25 billion. So that perhaps prompted a bit of a rethink on, on the revenue front. But an, another issue they considered was to what extent and how would they repair Iraqi oil infrastructure from damage, damage that occurred during, during the war. And it, it might have seemed obvious that um, they would want to repair the infrastructure. But in a, in a paper they produced in um, November 2002, actually they said, well, there's pros and cons to repairing it. Of course, the, the, pro, the big pro to repairing it is that it would minimize disruption to oil markets. The con, though, is that, and I'm quoting here, it could discourage private sector involvement. So here, here was a dilemma for the, the planners in the Pentagon of, of what was to happen to Iraq's oil. On the one hand, they could try and repair the infrastructure, create a healthy industry, 
and that would lead to less disruption in oil markets. On the other hand, they could, um, they could, leave, it out, they could leave it damaged by the war. They could refrain from trying to repair it, and that would create a big incentive for foreign companies to come in and perhaps achieve that bigger goal of restructuring the oil sector more broadly. Um, and this was a dilemma that played throughout US policy towards Iraq's oil during, during the course of the occupation, really. I mean, especially in the first two or three years. Um, I'd just like to say a little bit about the history of Iraq's oil industry. Um, oil was first discovered in Iraq in 1927. Um, in, uh, it was part of the Kirkuk field. Um, Iraq was, at the time, um, un under a British mandate, effectively controlled by Britain, under a British ins installed government. And the, the oil operations were carried out by a consortium of British, French, and American oil companies under a 75-year contract, which had been signed with them by the British-installed king in 1925. Um, that contract was um, perhaps inevitably, given that um, Britain was the controlling power in Iraq under the, under the League of Nations mandate. Perhaps inevitably, the contract was extremely one-sided. It gave very little to the Iraqis and gave a lot to the, uh, the foreign oil companies. And as a result of that, over subsequent years and decades, it became increasingly controversial, this and a couple of other contracts which were subsequently signed. And in Iraq, as throughout the region, there were a number of struggles through especially the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s, over the, ter the unfair terms of, of contracts signed um, at, a, at a very different time in those countries' history. Eventually, um, the oil industries of the region came to be nationalized in the 1970s. And Iraq played a leading role in that. In, in, the, in Iraq's case, the oil industry was nationalized between 1972 and 1975. After a very long struggle, which had um, been going on certainly since the revolution of, of 1958 and well before. The period immediately after nationalization was really the golden era of the Iraqi oil industry. Between 1972 and 1979, Iraqi oil production increased from one and a half million barrels a day to three and a half million barrels a day. The Iraqi, um, the nationalized Iraqi oil industry discovered um, six billion barrels of reserves every year, which was more, more than the whole, it, it exceeded the very best years for the whole of the rest of the world combined. So in purely technical terms, the Iraqi-run oil, oil industry was far more successful than the one run by Western multinationals immediately beforehand. Um, which, which is an interesting point, because we're often led to believe that it's only with Western capital and Western expertise that um, oil production can really be increased. Immediately after nationalization, it was the opposite. And that, that, gold, that golden era, it, it continued from 1972 until the end of the 1970s, and it came to an abrupt end when Saddam Hussein invaded Iran in 1980. Um, so, in, in the Iraqi oil industry, 
there's um, a really impressive level of technical expertise. People know how to run their industry. They were very successful in the 1970s. And then after 1980, in the two and a half decades of, of war and sanctions that followed, Iraqis were successful in rebuilding their industry after it was destroyed first in the war with Iran from 1980 to 1988, destroyed again in the Gulf War of 1991, and during the period of sanctions throughout the 90s and the early 2000s. And what Iraqis did, especially during the period of the sanctions, was they, they couldn't import new equipment, they couldn't get external finance to rebuild things, so they improvised. They cobbled together bits and pieces, they cannibalized them from old equipment, and they put it together, and they made it work. Um, one Iraqi engineer who I know, who worked in, in the oil industry throughout these decades, the way he put it to me was he said, we weren't engineers, we were craftsmen. And so there's, there's something in the Iraqi engineering culture which, know, which improvises in, uh, which has an ability to improvise in particularly difficult circumstances of war, sanctions, repeated destru destruction of the infrastructure. And it's something of which Iraqis are very proud. Now, if, if we go back to the Energy Infrastructure Planning Group in the Pentagon in 2002, they were weighing up, shall we leave the Iraqi oil industry damaged by war and let it all be swept away and replaced by American corporations rebuilding it? Or shall we help rebuild it um, and try and achieve stability in, in the oil markets. Now, in the end, in this phase, um, the latter view won out. Stabilize the oil markets. No, we will repair it. Um, one of the problems was that their decision on how to repair it was not to take advantage of this immense Iraqi expertise, which actually they, I think they didn't, they didn't even know about in the Pentagon. They thought, instead, we know who would be good for this. It's Kellogg, Brown, and Root, the Halliburton subsidiary which was appointed to do the work. So, c coming on to the period of, of the war and the early occupation and how oil played out in the, in the dynamics of that. Um, as I say, one of the big problems was that rather than using Iraqi expertise, they used American expertise. And American companies like Kellogg, Brown and Root, Halliburton, and in other sectors, uh, Bechtel was a big one in, in um, water and power, for instance. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the, these American companies simply didn't know the quirks of the Iraqi system. They didn't know how to operate in a, in a system where the infrastructure was problematic, the, the, clima the climate was far more extreme than they were used to. Um, and given the various technical, geographical, geological constraints, they were extremely unsuccessful. To give, you an, to give you an example of that, Kellogg, Brown and Root, one of its projects was to replace the water injection plant in the Ramela field. Now the Ramela field is one of the, uh, it's the largest in Iraq, it's, it's uh, in the south, it just straddles the Kuwait border. It's, it's, um, it's probably about 50 kilometers west of Basra. And um, the Ramela field has been operated since the 1950s. And as an oil field starts to get old, after it's been extracted for many years, the oil pressures down in the reservoir, which is 
a mile or two underneath the ground, the oil pressures reduce because you've, you've taken oil out of it. And so there isn't the same level of pressure to, to push it up, up the well to, to be extracted. And so what um, oil companies do is they inject things, um, very often water but sometimes gas, into the reservoir to increase the pressures. And so in the Ramela field, there was a facility to inject water into the, into the oil reservoir to, keep, to try and maintain some of the pressure to force the oil back out. And so one of Kellogg Brown and Root's projects was to repair the water injection plant on the Ramela field. It was called Kamat Ali. And Halliburton came in and they said, OK, we need a whole new set of pumps. We know the best pumps. We'll bring in the pumps. They, they installed them all. And um, they were paid however many tens of millions of dollars for this work. And uh, they, they went back to their, uh, their client, the US Army, and they said, it's all done, ready to go. The Army said, OK, flick the on switch. They flicked the on switch. And what happened was the, the water pipes started spraying water because KBR had replaced the pumps, it hadn't replaced the pipes. And the pipes were working fine with the, the old low-pressure system, but replace it with state-of-the-art high-pressure pumps, and the pipes couldn't cope. But Halliburton had done the job, KBR had done the job, it was contracted to do. And um, I, th I think it, it, it illustrates that if an Iraqi or if an Iraqi engineer had been responsible for that, probably the first thing they'd have said is, what about the pipes? Um, some, something else happened in the very early stage of, of the occupation. Um, sorry, even before the occupation. As, as you may recall, um, very, as Baghdad fell, and as, as the rest of the country fell in 2003, there was... Uh, um, a long period of sustained looting, especially of public buildings. Now, as you probably know, as is, as is well known, the, the one public building that the Americans defended was the Ministry of Oil, while schools, universities, hospitals, other ministries were all trashed. The museums, the libraries, many things were trashed. The the Americans defended the, um, the Ministry of Oil. They also, that they, they also one of their first operations for the, for the Marines as they, as they invaded from the south was to secure the oil fields to prevent the Saddam Hussein regime from setting them alight. On the other hand, there were lots of oil buildings and oil institutions which weren't protected. For instance, the state oil market, marketing oil organization which is responsible for exports and sales of Iraqi oil. It was completely trashed. I interviewed uh, one of its uh, senior executives, and he said, the looters were coming in. We went to the American tank outside, and we said, this is the oil marketing office, and it's being destroyed. Can you stop the looters, please? And they said, we've got no orders to. And e even the, the major facilities, the control rooms, the infrastructure was looted. In the south of Iraq, in the, in the desert, on these huge oil fields, there are drilling rigs. Now, a drilling rig is uh, something probably twice the height of this room, a great big steel derrick, a tower, which, through which the, um, the drill, the drill is, is run. And from these drilling rigs, for a period of three months after April 2003, 
Looters came and they stripped everything off it. First went the meters, they could sell the meters. Then, then they started stripping wire off because they could melt down the wire and they could sell it. And talking to the manager of one of these drilling rigs, he said everything had gone except the steel skeleton. And if the looters could have taken that, they'd have taken that too. And this went on for three months, and there was a British unit just down the road. And I think part of the attitude that was shaping the decision to protect the oil fields, protect the Ministry of Oil, not to protect the marketing organization, not to protect the control rooms, not to protect the drilling rigs, was that they could see the oil underneath the ground was of great value. If Saddam had set, set the wells alight, it would have done geological damage to the reservoirs, and it would have been that much harder to extract them afterwards. Similarly, in the Ministry of Oil building in, in Baghdad, there were records of the extraction of this oil um, over many decades. Your, the way to understand what was going on underneath the ground lay in those geological records. Whereas the organization which, which sells the oil for the state, you won't need that in the new Iran. Drilling rigs, we can build more for you. We'll just bring in more American companies to, to build those. And so what seemed to be happening in the decisions about what was protected and what wasn't protected in the looting, it looked like a, uh, a shift to the, the other option of non-repair that the uh, Pentagon Planning Group had considered. Then what happened, as, as, as I say, Kellogg, Brown and Root was put in charge of the, um, of the operation, and Iraqis were given no decision-making power in their oil industry. Many of the senior directors general, the, uh, the role they served in the early occupation was as interpreters. Men who'd spent 30 years in the oil industry, who knew it inside out. What they did was they, um, they helped translate between American um, military leaders and, and the, the people on the facilities, the refineries and so on. Um, you, th those of you who followed the war um, in Iraq, you've, you've probably, um, you, may, you may have come across some analysis of the, uh, the different political forces in the US at the time. Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the word neoconservatives. And the, um, the, the way the, uh, the, the Bush administration was characterized, certainly the, 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 his first term, was that there were these two, two conflicting groups. One was called the neocons, who were the ideological ones, the ones who really drove America to war, um, who had these grand ideas about freedom and who'd been obsessed with Iraq for at least a decade. On the other hand, there were, there were the foreign policy realists, uh, um, those who, who thought more about what is the real balance of power in the world and how do we interact with that. The neocons said, we don't care about that. We are the, the balance of power in the world and we'll, we'll do what we like. And it's, it's generally thought of um, in analysis of what went wrong in Iraq that the real problem was the neocons. Um, if only there had been more of these sensible realists. Only, if only they'd had more sway in the, um, in the Bush administration, then many of these terrible things wouldn't have happened. 
And it's certainly true that it was the neocons who drove the US to war in Iraq. They were completely obsessed with it. Um, the neocons, by the way, were dominant in, um, in the uh, Defense Department and in some parts of uh, Vice President Cheney's office. The, the realists were dominant in the State Department and the CIA. Actually, when you look a bit more closely, it's not the case that everything extreme is associated with the, the neocons or everything that went wrong is associated with the neocons and if only there had been more realists like the people in the Department of State. Actually, many of the realists, many of the people in, um, in the State Department were skeptical about the decision to go to war because they thought this is going to be very difficult. The people in the Pentagon said, no, this will be great, we'll just bomb the country and, and then democracy will, will rise up and they'll, they'll vote for Ahmed Chalabi and it will be a, a pro-US, pro-Israel, capitalist uh, nirvana in, in Iraq. That's, we just have to bomb it, that's all it will take. This was the neocon view. And, um, and the others could see this was uh, a little bit naive. Um, but because they saw it was difficult, the, the realists, they didn't want to get involved. Once the US had got involved, they were the real schemers. And so the way I would characterize it is not that the, um, the neocons were always the ones who um, were extreme and, and the, the realists were the ones who were more moderate. In, in fact, I think the way I'd characterize it is that the neocons believed once they removed Saddam, once they invaded Iraq, there would automatically be a blank sheet on which the American dream could be painted. The, the, the realists knew that wasn't the case, and so what they did was they worked to wipe the, the sheet, to, to remove the elements of Iraqi society and Iraqi state that could get in the way of achieving US interests. And so what, once the, the, the great crime of, of going to war had been committed, and it was the neocons who, who, who drove that. Some of the most damaging decisions during the course of the occupation were made by the uh, supposedly moderate camp. The most important of these was the decision in July, or the creation in July 2003 of what was called the Iraq Governing Council. This was the first quasi-government, quite the first unit of quasi-government in Iraq. Um, it had very little power, but it was, it was the stepping stone which evolved into um, an appointed government once the occupation end, the direct occupation ended in 2004, and then leading to the elections in 2005. And what, what they did in the creation of the Iraqi Governing Council was they decided participation would be allocated according to ethnicity and sect. It wasn't going to be according to who you represented or the set of ideas you had uh, or whether people liked your ideas. It was going to be according to what communal group you came from. And so they decided there are 25 members of the Iraqi Governing Council. We will have 13 Shia. We will have five Sunni Arabs. We'll have five Kurds. Have one Christian and one Turkoman. They, it wasn't even it wasn't even about having a link to representing those communities. For instance, 
I discovered when I was looking through some documents around this time. Um, two, two of those groups were reasonably represented. One was the Kurds, another was the, the Turkoman. Um, the Turkoman is a small minority, largely in the north of, of Iraq. And they had a representative body, a political party organization called the Iraqi Turkoman Front. And the Americans decided they didn't want someone from the Iraqi Turkoman Front on the governing council because it was a bit too close to Turkey and they were cross with Turkey over not letting them invade through, through the northern route as well. So instead they selected someone who had absolutely no connection with the community. There was also a woman which helped with that quota as well. Um, some of the secular politicians, now there's a very strong secular tradition in Iraq. Some of the secular politicians were appointed onto the council according to their, their family background. So if, if, their, if their family or they, in terms of their personal identity, were Shia, it didn't matter that they didn't think of themselves as Shia. If, they, if that's where they came from, that was the box they ticked in, in their participation in this. Now, what, what this did was it opened the door to a whole number of politicians who had no connection with Iraqi points of view. They were se selected because they were deemed appropriate, and they ticked the, the set of boxes according to uh, these identity criteria. And th this, this is something which doesn't have precedent. or in, at, at this kind of scale, it simply doesn't have, have precedent in Iraq before 2003. This is a whole new idea to structure politics around sectarian and ethnic identity. The people they brought in were a particularly um, self-interested bunch. Many of them had spent, spent their, their time in, in London and New York during, during the, the previous couple of decades. There were 25 of them. One of their first jobs was to appoint ministers to the, um, to the 21 ministries that existed in the Iraqi government. And what they decided was, well, we can't select 21. Let's create another four ministries, and there'll be 25, and we can have one each. And so each of them appointed a brother, a cousin, a member of their party, a friend, um, most of whom were completely incompetent. Um, once those ministers were appointed, um, one of these uh, got into the, um, into the oil ministry, the oil minister. He was a... Um, a protege of Ahmed Chalabi. His father was also a member of, both his father and Ahmed Chalabi, his political patron, were both members of the governing council. So he got the oil ministry, and he started clearing out all of the experts who'd been there for the previous decades. Um, during the period from March 2003 to early 2004, 17 of the 24 directors general who were running the oil ministry were cleared out. I, either they left or they were cleared out. So about three quarters of them. One of them, who I know reasonably well, um, he, had been, he had worked in the Iraqi oil industry since 1967. He had um, 36 years of experience. Uh, he was uh, very well respected for his technical expertise. He was got rid of. And he was replaced by someone whose principal qualification was as a pizza chef. And so what, what happened was a political class and a technical class was created 
that had neither connection with the interests or desires of most Iraqis, nor the integrity or honesty to de deliver on those interests and, and needs. And in terms of the, the um, oil interests I was talking about earlier, this, this resolved a rather difficult conundrum. Um, in, in May 2003, a British government strategy paper stated that the future shape of the, Iraq, of the Iraqi oil industry will affect oil markets and the functioning of OPEC, in both of which we have a vital interest. Now, a vital interest is somewhat at odds to what we were told by our politicians at the time as to the degree to which they were interested in Iraqi oil. So they had a vital interest in Iraqi oil, in reshaping it in the ways I, I described. On the other hand, the vast majority of Iraqis one felt very passionately that oil should remain in the public sector, should remain controlled by Iraqis and by the Iraqi state. Now, these two positions are apparently incompatible, and even more so when you consider that what they were doing in Iraq was creating a democracy. And this, this conundrum of a vital British interest in restructuring the Iraqi oil industry to be led by foreign investment a powerful Iraqi view that um, the opposite should remain the case, and the creation of a democracy, the way to resolve these three, or the way it was resolved, was to create a democracy that didn't respond to Iraqi views. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting this was some kind of nasty conspiracy theory. I'm not suggesting that Tony Blair and George Bush were cackling while, while they plotted all this out. Um, I, I don't think politics is quite that neat. But I, I, think, I think human beings have a capacity to hold beliefs about the world that match um, what it is in their interest to, to believe. Um, so on that basis, it's perhaps easier to understand why, why the West perceives security threats more often from the Middle East than from elsewhere, why it perceives humanitarian concerns more, more often in the Middle East than elsewhere. Why did they attack Iraq, not North Korea, in 2003? In security terms, North Korea was arguably a bigger threat. To, to illustrate um, how those beliefs suited um, what, what, what it was convenient for them to believe, in um, ju just before the war started, there was a British in a, um, there was a British analysis of what to do about the oil. Another one, um, in which they said, they wrote, certainly most and very likely all managers in the Iraqi oil industry have spent their entire working lives in an environment which valued secrecy above openness, the status quo against change, party loyalty over ability, and corruption over honesty. Now, I can see why they might have thought that in 2002-2003. Actually, it's not a very good description of pre-2003 Iraqi oil industry. My experience of it, from talking to people who were involved in it, is that, for the most part, the senior officials were honest. For the most part, they believed in their country, not in the, in the party or the president. Actually, um, it, was a, it was a system which was very meritocratic. But the, 
the British believed it was corrupt, based on party loyalty and not competent, and it was quite convenient for them to believe that. The irony is that over the next couple of years, the, what they created was almost exactly what, what they had worried existed in the, in the oil industry before they arrived. And I think, I think to a certain extent, enough repetition of certain ideas allowed them to become true in the minds of, of those involved in the occupation. Um, uh, one qu quite, quite remarkable example of this was, um, so last, last year Dick Cheney's memoirs came out, the year before George Bush's did, and both of them say, we had to go to war in Iraq because we couldn't allow Saddam Hussein to develop weapons of mass destruction. These books came out in 2010 and 2011. Everyone knew by about 2004 that there weren't weapons of mass destruction nor programs to develop them. And Bush and Cheney are still going on about these as um, why the war was necessary. Um, to give you one more, one more example, um, in, in 2007, um, the Bush administration changed its strategy in Iraq. It, it brought a, a new general to Iraq named uh, David Petraeus. And uh, George Bush announced what he called a surge, sending an extra 30,000 troops to Iraq to, um, to try and assert uh, control over the country, to try and achieve security. And that, that strategy, it was actually a two-part strategy. The, the surge is the better known part of it. It's, he'd send these extra 30,000 troops. Um, the less well-known part of it was directly tied to that, was to use the control that those extra troops achieved to pressure Iraqi politicians to achieve what they to deliver what they called benchmarks, markers of political progress. And they had a handful of these, a dozen or so. Most important of which was to pass an oil law, which would have uh, which would have transferred the major role in running the Iraqi oil industry from the nationalized Iraqi oil companies to foreign companies. Now, um, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go into detail about that now, but the way it was always described throughout 2007, and, and the Americans talked about it constantly, every time a, a senior member of the US cabinet went to Iraq, all they said was, when are we getting the oil law? They couldn't call it the law to privatize Iraq's oil. What they called it was the law to fairly share revenues among Iraq's warring communities. They called it the revenue-sharing law. And so they said, well, actually, this is a very noble thing. It will bring peace to Iraq. The law they were talking about, I've read it. It's, it's available on the internet. They call it the revenue-sharing law. The law doesn't talk about revenue-sharing. In fact, actually, it does. It, it, it's, a, it's about 40 pages long, this law. And there are three sentences which relate to revenue sharing in Article 11. And they say um, it's very important to resolve how revenues from, these, from this oil extraction, how these revenues will be shared. There will be a separate, separate law to determine this. So throughout 2007, everyone in the US establishment and in the US media was talking about the revenue sharing law, referring to this law with, whose only mention of revenue sharing was that there had to be another law to, to regulate it. So again, it was, a, it was a case of repetition making something, I, su I suppose, come true in, in the minds of those who repeated it. Now, I'd just like to say something very briefly about what's going on now, and then um, 
I'll, I'll turn it over to discussion and, and questions. Um, the, those decisions, to, the, or the decision especially to create the sectarianized um, Iraq Governing Council in 2003 had disastrous consequences. The sectarianization of, of politics was directly tied to the sectarianization of, of society and of violence and, and led to the horrific killing that took place, especially climaxing really in, in 2006 and 2007, in which hundreds of corpses were found every day in the streets of Baghdad. It also encouraged the expression of difference, differences between, political differences between Kurds and Arabs. The Iraq today is well on its way to being a failed state, in my view. It's flirting at different times with a reversion to sectarianism. Iraqis tried to move beyond sectarianism in the years from 2008 onwards. Um, it's, the Iraqi state is again flirting with sectarianism. It's flirting more so with authoritarianism. The current prime minister is accumulating power. And the state is almost completely dysfunctional in its ability to deliver services. At the same time, multinationals have now arrived in the Iraqi oil industry. They arrived just over a couple of years ago. And there is a complete absence of a capacity to regulate it. Since 2003, the Iraqi oil industry has been run by the pizza chefs. And so since um, multinationals have, have arrived investing billions of dollars, there simply isn't the capacity to oversee that to prevent corruption, to ensure that it, that it operates in, in Iraqi interests, to protect the environment, to protect workers, and so on. Regulation is, is essential to any effective um, infrastructure development, especially in the um, extractive industries. I'll give you an example of that. Um, the first contract awarded to develop an oil field was for the Romela field, which we talked about earlier. It was awarded to a consortium of, of BP and the China National Petroleum Company. Um, in, in about March 2010, this consortium awarded its first drilling contracts to, to start drilling wells in, in the well to increase its production. And they awarded about 50 wells at a cost of $10 million per well. Now, if you go around the region, if you look at how oil is extracted in, if you look at, in Kuwait, in Saudi Arabia, in comparable circumstances to, um, to the Ramallah field in southern Iraq. The going rate for drilling contracts is, it ranges from about two, two and a half to about three and a half million dollars per, per well. But in Iraq it was ten million dollars per well. Why is it so much higher? Security might add ten percent, doesn't triple it. And so this looked very odd. A contract had been awarded for, for what looked like it was about three times what it should have cost. Now, it starts to make more sense when you look at who it was awarded to. Nearly half of those wells were going to be drilled by a company called Daqing Petroleum. Daqing Petroleum is a subsidiary of the China National Petroleum Corporation, which awarded the contract. And the, the the way the contract, the contract with BP and, and the China National Petroleum Corporation is written, all of these costs for drilling or for other contracts or other operations 
the oil companies, BP, CMPC, they pay them and then they, they hand over their receipts to the Iraqi government and reclaim them. So this was money that was being paid by the Iraqi government, not by BP and CMPC. CMPC. It was being paid at a, at a massively inflated cost to a subsidiary of one of the companies that made the decision of who to award the contract to. The, um, the, these contract, the, the award of these types of contracts, like drilling contracts, is supposed to be overseen by a committee with both Iraqi members and, um, and representatives of the foreign companies. And BP and CMPC had a clause inserted in it, which was, if this committee can't decide within, I think it's 40, 45 days, then it's, it is assumed that it has decided in favor. In this case, the award, awarding this overpriced drilling contract to Dacking Petroleum, they went to the, management, the Joint Management Committee and they said, we'd like, to, we'd like to approve this contract. And the Iraqis on the committee said, that sounds very expensive. Um, can we look into it? We, we, we're not oil people, we're pizza people. Well, we, we don't know how much these things cost. Um, but we'll find some experts to, to tell us. And so they started looking for experts to tell them how much it costs to drill a well. And they didn't find any in time, because most of the experts had left the country since 2003. And the 40 days, 45 days had passed, and it was assumed they'd approved it. And so the Iraqi government pays this overpriced um, drilling contract to a subsidiary of CNPC. And there isn't the Iraqi capacity to even know. Um, I, I, I was quite shocked. About a year after the contracts were awarded, I was talking to someone from one of the um, Western multinationals who was on their joint management committee. And I said, what are the Iraqis like on the committee? And he said, most of them haven't even read the contract. And so these people who are supposed to ensure that the, the state's interests are, um, are well reflected and what's written in the contract is, is followed, they haven't even seen the contract. Um, and what's, what's happened as a result of this is a chronic level of corruption. Two companies already are being investigated over either payment or receipt of bribes. Eni, the Italian company, which is running the Zubair field, which is just south of Basra, is being investi investigated again for handing out overpriced contracts, um, but in this case, receiving bribes from the, um, the contractor of the, the overpriced contracts were awarded to. And the Australian company, Leighton, is being, um, is being investigated in Australia for paying bribes over to the Iraqi company, which awarded a contract to construct the export terminal in the south. This, kind, this level of corruption is, is fairly inevitable, where you don't have the, you don't have the capacity to oversee it in, in, um, in the state. Um, I, I, need to I need to conclude now. Um, the, the situation in Iraq, as I've said, is, is one of completely dysfunctional politics. Part of the reason for that dysfunctional politics is what, or the major reason for it, is what was created in 2003. I think there's an irony there in that what was created was a system, as I said, that wasn't responsible to Iraqi views or Iraqi, wasn't responsive to Iraqi views and Iraqi interests, which was very helpful to the occupiers because it would be responsive to pressures from outside. But as US influence in, in Iraq declined post-2007, I would say, and leading up to the withdrawal of US troops at the end of last year, 
that created a political vacuum because here was a political system that doesn't respond to the people of the country, it responds to outside forces, and the force which has really stepped into that political vacuum is, of course, Iran. And so it's, it's become a truism that the real winner of, of the Iraq war um, was the country which nominally didn't participate in it, which is Iran, which has been massively empowered. Um, the, the oil industry in Iraq is chaotic. There isn't the capacity to regulate it. For some bizarre reason, um, what they're wanting to do is sign even more contracts, bring more companies in, when the people in the, Iraq, in the institutions in Iraq are saying, we can't even cope with what we've got now. And so they're planning to award more contracts this month um, for exploration blocks. The, there's one bit of good news which um, I'd like to mention, which makes me more hopeful for the future. What, what I've seen through, I mean, it, it would be, I've, I've worked on Iraq since 2003. It would, it would have been very easy for me to get very depressed during that period with everything that's happened there, both the violence, the destruction of the, of the country. And what has stopped me from getting too depressed or has brought me back when I have got depressed is spending time with Iraqis. And what I've seen in Iraq is a, a, a culture where people really want to engage in making the future better. In, in Iraq, I think there is... Um, a civil society culture, which I, I as, a, as a Briton, um, can only feel envious of. You know, here we, we struggle with um, apathy about politics. People are far more interested in celebrities than they are in um, what's being done to them by the government. In, in Iraq, what I saw was, what I, what I have seen and what I, what I know in Iraq, is both a willingness of people to engage in these issues, to talk about them, and, and a willingness to organize around them, to get together and try and change things. And through the course of the oil struggles, Iraqi civil society has achieved some quite remarkable successes. For me, I, I, don't make, I don't make any claim to have predicted the, the events that took place across the region um, beginning in late 2010 and especially in, during um, the spring of 2011. But for me, after what I'd seen in Iraq, after what I'd seen of how people organize to defend their interests, the interests of their country, the interests of their community, their family, against corrupt rulers and Western-backed rulers and rulers who have other interests at heart. I think perhaps, for me, it was easier to place the uprisings that took place again across the region last year. And I think, ultimately, it's going to be organizing by the Iraqi people that shapes Iraq's future. And in spite of everything, and in spite of everything I've said today, it's for that reason that I'm still an optimist about Iraq. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much for such a fascinating and stimulating lecture and for ending on such a, a positive note. We have about 30 minutes for questions and answers. We have uh, stewards with roping mics, so if you want to ask a question, please put up your hand and wait for the microphone to reach you. 
and please also introduce yourself and state your affiliation if you can. Uh, questions? Hookie. Uh, thank you. Thank, thank you for a truly fascinating talk. Uh, I'd like to ask a question relating to the first part, that is, to what extent did oil play a part in the decision of the US and the UK to go to war? Now, there's a sense, of course, in which um, Western decisions to do with the Middle East are all to do with oil. I mean, they wouldn't really be interested in that region so much but for the presence of oil. And governments habitually write bits of paper about everything. I mean, they obviously have a paper on our strategy for oil. But I question whether all those papers were actually decisive in, for, in uh, deciding the US government and the, Brit and the British uh, and their lapdogs to actually go to war. I think all the, all the memoirs, all the, other all the other papers one has seen point to what we might loosely call the neocon agenda, uh, reshaping the Middle East. And funnily enough, um, you may be able to correct me, I don't think the oil majors in the US were very keen on, um, on the war. And Cheney, w of course, was in their pocket. Well, Cheney was, would have been on their side. I don't think the, the US majors were keen on war at all. So I question whether um, oil was at all decisive in the decision to go to war. But you may be able to correct me. Shall I answer them one at a time? Um, th thank you. That's, I mean, that's an excellent point and, and question. Um, I, th I, think, I think we would be wrong to look for some record of a concrete decision in the, uh, in the rational sense. Um, and I think, I think there's understandably a, a desire for or a striving for where is the document that tells us what the real reason was. And I, I don't think we're ever going to find that. I don't think such a document really exists. Um, which, and, and of course, that, that can be unsatisfying. Um, and so, actually, the, the, the papers I quoted from, the, all of those were, were papers written after the, the decision had been taken to go to war. So what are we going to do about the oil having gone to war? Um, and I think it's, I, I think the, clear, clearly the, um, the neocon thinking about um, s spreading freedom across the Middle East um, was, uh, was very important to it, as, as were neocon concerns about the security of Israel. Um, what, what I'm where I'm coming from is, basically, I don't, I, don't think we can, I don't think we can or should come up with any single or neat explanation for why go to war. And I don't think there is one. Um, but what we can identify is various political drivers, both in what people were saying, what people were thinking, and where, where different interests were. The ones I've traced came from parts of the energy policy establishment, in particular think tanks, to a much lesser extent the oil companies themselves. Um, as for what the oil majors, the oil majors thought, um, actually the British and European majors, BP and Shell in particular, were quite sceptical about the decision to go to war. 
Um, Exxon, I, th I think, seemed, seemed happier with it, but I, I don't think the war was for Exxon. I think where oil interests played, as I said, was more about shaping the oil market and the interests of, of the, uh, uh, the British and American corporations came secondary to that. Um, where the, um, the oil company lobbying really did play was once the decision to go to war had been taken, all of them wanted to make sure they got their piece of the pie. And so I've got records of BP and Shell meeting with the British government in the run-up to the war, where um, the minister they were meeting at the time, uh, Baroness Simon, said, well, if we've participated in the war, it's only fair that our company should get a share of the spoils. Therefore, I'll make sure with the Americans that you get your piece as well. Um, so certainly oil company lobbying was playing at that, at that stage. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting the war was simple, the reasons for the war were simple, and I, I, don't, think, I don't think reductionism is going to help us here. There's a question there. Um, I had two, two questions. First one, um, do you have any knowledge of, sort of fitting with your point that uh, people's uh, beliefs often seem to fit with their interests, whether or not uh, Dick Cheney was able to keep the stock options he got when he left Halliburton as the CEO? Because I remember doing sort of a back of the envelope math a while ago, and I think Halliburton's stock price, sort of between two critical dates, I forget what they were, basically has gone up 10 times, which would make him like a 100 millionaire. Um, I don't know if you have any, or maybe when he stepped into office, he had to get rid of those, and he didn't get to receive that. I was just curious about that. Um, that was the first quick question. The second question was about true presence. Um, I just, I was wondering if you could maybe uh, give a clearer sense. Something I'm trying to understand is how much of a lever of power is it to have uh, troop presence, be it if we go into Iraq or Afghanistan, I'm an American, so I say we. Um, how much of a lever is that over Russia or Iran? Or, and I'm just trying to understand if it is quite a lever of, of power. Why exactly? Because it's I don't know, I, I imagine it's sort of hard to use troops. You really need a massive justification for it. Just trying to get a clearer sense about that. You, you said a lever over Russia or Iran. Yeah, just in general. How much uh, of a lever of power is it to have a troop presence, you know, uh -huh. next door in terms of countries? Uh, okay. Okay. Um... On, on the first point, um, I think what happened was uh, what seems to happen when politicians have, have shares that would generate a conflict of interest, they're allowed to keep them, but in a blind trust, um, or they're not allowed to buy and sell with them while they're making political decisions. Um, quite why that's considered adequate, I don't know. Um, I think, I think with, with Cheney, though, I mean, he did. He did. He was still receiving money from Halliburton, certainly, in the um, in the first few years of his vice presidency. Um, I kind of wonder why he bothered. Um, he wasn't short of money. He wasn't particularly motivated by money. He was far more motivated by power. Um, I think he kind of almost made it easy for his critics, and the the interests at stake were worth far more than you know. 
a few millions or tens of millions of dollars that he might earn from it. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think it's troubling that uh, a politician can get away with such a blatant com conflict of interest. Um, but I think the true consequences were far more profound than um, what he had to what he had to gain from it, and I think what he what he wanted to gain from it was much greater than um, you know a bit more wealth. Um, you, your your question wasn't wasn't about your second question. It wasn't about the influence that troops give over the country that they're occupying. It was over neighbouring countries. Um, so, to what extent does it affect Iran that there are troops in Afghanistan and there were troops in, in Iraq? I'm sure it has a psychological impact. Um, militarily, un unless they were actually considering incursions across the border, as they have into Pakistan, for instance, um, I don't imagine it's, it's that different. But where, I mean, where, where you really see the impact of troops you see the political impact is on the country in which, in which they're stationed. And so that's a very big difference between what unfolded in Iraq from 2003 onwards and what unfolded in, in Libya last year. Um, the absence of an occupying force in Libya gave the, um, gave the National Transitional Council in Libya far more independence from the interests of um, Britain, France, the USA than than was ever achieved by the Iraqi politicians post-2003. A question at the back, on the side of me. John Strafford. Um, <clears throat> how many military personnel, foreign military personnel, are still in Iraq, and could they be reinforced quickly? And is it possible, with all the corruption there, that there would, could be an Arab Spring? And if so, uh, what do you think might happen? Um, the, the major US forces were withdrawn at the end of last year. Um, at, the, at the end of the Bush administration in 2008, the UN mandate for foreign troops to remain in Iraq expired. Um, and the Bush administration, one of the last things it did was it negotiated a uh, bilateral agreement with the Iraqi government to keep troops there, essentially by their invitation. Um, the Bush administration had wanted an indefinite, or at least very, very long-term agreement. But um, by 2008, when this was being negotiated, American, American influence in Iraq had already significantly started to decline. Um, incidentally, I think a, a large part of the reason for that was that they overreached on trying to shape oil policy in 2007. Um, so what eventually happened in 2008 was they did get an extension, but for a limited time period of three years, up till the end of, of 2011. Um, the last British troops, or the last major numbers of British troops, withdrew in April 2009, um, which was largely because their continued um, presence in Iraq was politically toxic here, and Gordon Brown was keen to get rid of them and say, look, that was a Blair problem. Um, I mean, withdraw them and, and get, get rid of the problem. Um, the, the US 
Um, US senior officials lobbied really hard last year to renew the, the agreement for them to keep them there beyond the end of last year. Um, and they failed essentially, I think, because of a mismatch between what the Americans needed politically and what the, uh, what the Iraqi politicians needed politically. Um, and the major sticking point was over um, liability for, um, uh, for violations of human rights um, or any, any other damages. And basically because of where American politics were, the war and occupation being, being so unpopular, they couldn't accept that um, US troops might be liable for their actions carried out in Iraq, liable in Iraqi courts. That just didn't fit the narrative back home. At the same time, um, Iraqi politicians were trying to assert themselves as having some form of sovereignty, and that just wasn't, that wouldn't be consistent with not being able to try violations of Iraqi law in Iraqi courts. And so they weren't able to agree on this despite a big lobbying campaign through the course of last year. Um, and so the decision was made that they would with, withdraw the last of them. The, the numbers were down, by, by summer last year, the numbers were down to, um, I think, about 50,000 from around 160, 170 at peak. Um, that doesn't mean they have no influence in Iraq. They, it's, the US Embassy in Baghdad is the largest in the world. It's about one and a half square miles. Um, and that its security personnel, most of whom are private contractors from um, companies like Blackwater, um, there are about 7,000 of them. But there's no formal US military presence or British military presence in Iraq anymore, apart from a couple of hundred trainers and advisors and that kind of thing. Um, Iraq did have um, a series of significant protests last year as part of the Arab Spring. Um, we didn't hear about them so much as we did in other countries, and I think a large part of the reason for that is um, commentators couldn't get their heads around the idea that um, Iraqis were protesting against a government which they'd elected only the previous year. Um, there was a general election in 2010, um, and so surely that means Iraq is a democracy. And I, I think, I think the, the answer to that conundrum is that, as I said earlier, what was created was a dysfunctional democracy where the only politicians who could succeed in elections were those who Iraqis didn't see as representing them and who were unable or unwilling to provide the services that Iraqis demanded, such as electricity or water. Um, so there were very big protests. The, the government was very effective at neutralizing them through a combination of um, political tricks and, and violence. Um, you know, protesters in Baghdad's Tahrir Square were beaten up by Maliki thugs. Um, but there were a whole number of protests. Um, and what they, they, they led to um, the removal from office of three provincial governors. The national government stayed in, in place. Um, but three provincial governors got removed. One of the things that did come out of it was Maliki promised, this will be his last, Prime Minister Maliki promised that this, his second term, will be his last. But certainly, Iraqis feel very un unhappy with their leaders. And, um, and I, I imagine there will be um, further protests in the future 
from what I've seen of Iraqi society. And, and of course, under the new democratic government, there will be attempts to crush it. There's a question here in the third row. Here you, sir. Thank you very much. Um, At the risk of a rebuke from the chairman, I wonder if I could ask a, a two questions also. Um, the first, uh, recognizing your point that the executive branch of the oil sector seems to be taken over by pizza chefs, um, would, would you comment on the, on, on the likely e efficacy of the attempts by the legislative branch, the, the, the parliament and the parliament's selective committee to help regulate the oil sector uh, now and in the future? Second question is going back um, a bit to the history. Um, to what extent do you think that there was some connection between um, the allocation and the, re the debates about the regional allocation of oil, the regional resources, potential resources of oil, and the difficulties of getting uh, uh, settlements and agreements on oil? I mean, to fill in the background of that, I remember Baram Saleh was saying 350 million barrels of reserves in Iraq yet to be proven, but also at the time there was a lot of, uh, of, of uh, recognition of the oil reserves in Kurdistan and Hill International I think were uh, uh, considered there were going to be 100, million, 100 billion barrels of reserves in the western province. Mm -hmm. So looking at with the other provinces, to what extent did you find that some of the regional issues and debates about oil reserves and therefore oil power had an effect on, on, on oil settlements? Mm -hmm. Um, on, the, on the first question, um, Parliament is, the Iraqi Parliament um, has at times been effective. <laughs> um, at the moment, it doesn't look very effective. Um, and I think what, what has made the difference is the extent to which parliamentarians are um, playing the political intrigues between the major blocs and to what extent they're trying to, to um, general, genuinely scrutinize policy. Um, and I, th I think at the times when the parliament has been effective, it's well, I think there are, it's either been when there have been individuals or groups within the parliament that, that have sought to scrutinize. I mean, this was happening especially in 2009-2010, um, uh, before, before the last election. Um, and the other time was when it became very clear to Iraqis that the the politics of the executive branch didn't match the politics of the country. And that became very clear in 2007, really. And so in 2007, the dividing line in Iraqi politics, it ceased to be about Shia Sunni Kurd, as it was um, conceived in the 2005 elections. And it became more about um, sectarian, non-sectarian, or pro-occupation, anti-occupation, so it was more of a kind of um, bifurcation rather than a trifurcation. Um, and around, you know, what is the nature of, of the country and what do people want it to be rather than these communal identities. Um, at, at the moment, I think, I think Parliament is still adjusting to 
the election which took place over two years ago now. Um, there wasn't a government, or the half a government was formed about 10 or 11 months after the election, and the political ramifications of that are still being explored and played out. So at the moment, I don't think Parliament is very functional. Um, but um, it has been in the past, and perhaps it can be again in the future. Um, the, where, where the reserves are located in Iraq, um, so Iraq has 110 or so billion barrels of proven reserves, which is about 10% of the world's total. Of those 110 billion barrels, um, around 70% are in three provinces in the south, um, Basra, Mara, and um, Masaria. And, um, and about 10% is, is in Kirkuk province, um, a much smaller proportion is, is in the, um, the areas that are um, constitutionally controlled by the Kurdistan regional government. Less than 5% is there, although they've got a lot of exploration deals going on at the moment. Um, the, the most prospective um, unexplored area, as you say, is the Western Desert, um, especially Ambar province. And people do talk about as much being f still to be found there as exists in the rest of Iraq. Who, who knows? They haven't done the, the exploration yet. <coughs> I, there are regional, there are geographical tensions over where the oil is located. And there have been, at different times, movements in, in Basra saying, actually, why don't we keep all our wealth in Basra and not share it with the rest of the country? I, th I think whereas there, there is an ethnic dimension to um, the situation for, for Kurds in Iraq, I think the, what's been misrepresented is the sect that there, it's been suggested that there's a sectarian dimension to um, where Iraq's oil reserves are. For instance, you know, the real center of Shia power in Iraq, the two holy cities of Najaf and Karbala, um, have no oil between them. Um, and uh, so I think there is, there is an ethnic dimension um, with uh, the distinctive Kurdish identity and the long-term Kurdish desire for autonomy or independence. Um, that leads to disputes over especially the oil in, in Kirkuk province. Um, there is a regional dimension in the rest of Iraq, but not, in my view, a significant sectarian one. Uh, we're running short of time, so if anyone wants to ask a question, I'll take a last group. So, Salah, and then you, sir, and then one at the back as well. So, Salah. Uh, thank you for your presentation and talk. Uh, I have a uh, comment rather than a question. Like the way you said, you uh, ended your lecture with uh, a note that the civilian people in Iraq, they want to rebuild Iraq, which is right. But the problem of the Iraq population, you know, they were under the under Saddam regimes for several decades, where they didn't have any media, any uh, healthcare, any education. And they have only one channel, or and now we hear just the news like within three years they are planning to launch a satellite in Iraq. So I think the roadmap for Iraq is not only you know the oil sector. They have other resources. They have agriculture. They have tourism. They have you know, manpower with uh, brains, you know, 
that being drained outside, they should come back to their country, they should have a system where they could get them back, where they could transfer technology with them, and to rebuild Iraq rather than thinking only politics or, you know, the, this is what the Iraqi needs. We lived with Iraq. We know Iraqi, you know, the families mixed with the Kuwaiti families, and we believe those people, they could build, but they need uh, strong, you know, plans uh, and education and other things. And the other part of it, you know, when the, uh, Kuwait liberated, there was a chance to liberate Iraq at the same time, which everything was there, but unfortunately, I don't know why it's been postponed for several years to have the Iraqi to stay more with the uh, Saddam's regime. And thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, you in the white shirts, you had a question? Um, the gentleman down here asked about the influence of oil in the decision to invade Iraq in 2003. I was wondering um, how much the sort of neoconservative idea of let's spread our democracy and freedom all over the world, I was wondering how much that influenced the decision to invade Iraq. And then the question, yes, you. Throughout your lecture, you rather painted a very dark, gloomy picture of Iraq, and I wanted to ask, is there a way forward, in your opinion, and also if the West, mainly, you know, uh, UK and US, is part of the problem, could we be part of the solution as well? Thank you. Please. Thank you very much. What do you mean by fuel on fire? Fuel on fire. Fire is itself fuel. So how fuel on fire? If you mean Okay, it's, it's uh, thank you. Fuel on the fire is uh, an English expression, um, which means if you throw fuel on the fire, it means it makes a, situ a bad situation worse. And so um, I, I suppose the title is a, a bit of a pun as well as an alliteration, and these are the things we consider when we put together book titles. Um, but it's, it, it's about the role of oil in the war and, and how it made a bad situation worse. To, to I, th I think we're about to run out of time, and I'd like to be able to respond to the other. Maybe you could just ask him at the end, because we're running out of time. Please, thank you. 
Um, yeah, afterwards I'm going to be going just to the landing below to sell books, so please come and talk to me while I'm down there. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with your point that um, the, the country, not just Iraq, um, but the, the countries of the region as a whole suffer from uh, very heavy oil dependence. And um, w what, what they need to do is um, try and use oil revenue to diversify their economies. Um, there's been very let little success in that across the region um, so far. Um, the, the, I mean, ne neocon ide ideology was, was clearly part of it. Um, I think, I think you, I mean, what, what you could say is that the Iraq war was a, was a coming together of a certain, um, a certain strategic model which perhaps manifested itself in, in Dick Cheney's office um, and an ideology which, which came through the, um, the, the neoconservatives and, and perhaps the, the two of those together were what made the, the conditions for um, the US to go to war in Iraq. Um, but certainly I, I, do, I don't want to um, downplay or dismiss the, uh, the role of the neocons. As I said, they were the ones who argued most forcefully for war. Um, some of them thought very carefully about oil and some, some thought far more about Israel. You know, there's a, there are a lot of neocons. Um, sorry, what was your question? Can you remind me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Could they be also part of the solution? Could we really have a moral responsibility? We can't only close you know, all the things that you talked about and then... Okay. Um, I, think, I think for me, so one of the reasons I wrote this book is I, I don't think, I didn't think this was going to be the last war in, in the Middle East. Um, and last year I found out that my prediction was correct. Um, and, and so I, I thought that this, this, this war has it's defined the last decade and there are lessons we can draw from it in, in the ways you're suggesting. And I, I think one of the most important lessons for me is that many of the people who were involved in the war and the occupation, actually I, I don't think they were cackling, evil, um, Machiavellian types. Um, actually, you know, I've, I've met various of the officials and some of them I, I even quite liked. Um, and, and I think many people thought, believed they were doing a good thing. They believed in the morality of what they were doing. Whether they were oil advisors trying to um, improve the Iraqi oil industry by bringing in the, the multinational companies like Exxon and BP, or whether they were political advisors thinking, well, Iraq would be better if uh, Shia and Sunni each had their respective percentages in the, in the government. Um, I, I don't think some grand evil plan is what lies behind what happened in Iraq. But what I do think happened is that subconsciously the interests of the occupying powers, primarily the USA and Britain, shaped the way they understood events and the way they understood events and the way they 
conceived solutions to Iraq's problems um, reflected what was in fact in, in the interests of their own countries. And I think you really can't get away from that. And, and uh, the reason I opposed the war in 2003 was not because I wanted Saddam Hussein to remain in power, but because I thought any action by the USA and Britain to remove him, what comes after will inevitably reflect those countries' interests. Um, I, I think the lesson is that um, it is not for the Western powers to intervene in other countries, to occupy them, to invade them, to try and resolve their problems, simply because I think they can't because of where the political dynamics are. What should we do? We should, um, we should respect the, the people of those countries and allow them to determine their political futures. I think that lesson is very clear to me from, from the Iraqi experience. Do we have a moral responsibility? Um, personally, I think we should, be, um, we should be, be demanding that the USA and the UK owe reparations to the Iraqi people. But I think uh, it's some way off politically before that point becomes accepted. Well, thank you very much. Uh, as I mentioned, they'll be selling copies of the book outside on the landing, and Greg will be very happy to sign them. Uh, thank you so much for an excellent lecture. Thank you. Thank you.